Let's talk soil this morning. I am joined this morning by a couple of folks from the University of Connecticut. Huiji Gan, Assistant Research Professor of Soil Health and Agroecology, Department of Plant Science and Landscape Architecture at UConn, and Monique Michaud, graduate student in the Department of Plant Science and Landscape Architecture at the University of Connecticut. Ladies, good morning. Thanks for joining me today. This is going to be a fun, interesting discussion about the value of soil to our everyday life. But, Huiji, let me start things off by asking a really basic question. What's the difference between soil and dirt? Well, that's good questions. And I think that as a soil scientist, I would not refer to soil as dirt because we know that soil is not just dirt. It has a plant alive living there. And back in the old days, people actually consider soil is a poor man's tropical forest. What do I mean by that? It's because there's a lot of biodiversity in soil. You don't need to travel all the way to, traf- uh, to the tropic area to study biodiversity. You can simply go to the backyard and pick up a handful of soil and you can see a lot of critters if you look at them closely, like nematodes, mites, springtails. But at the same time, there's also a lot of them that you cannot see with your naked eyes because they're microorganisms. But we know that they're there because we have a way to study it. And here in my, in my hand is a piece of device we call a carbon dioxide sensor. And it can tell us the concentrations of the CO2 or the carbon dioxide in the atmosphere. In this room, I've been monitoring it. It's about like 800 parts per million, a little bit higher than outside because we know that outside in um, normally is about like 400 to 500 parts per million. All right, there's not much soil in my studio here unless you brought some in. So what does that mean that the CO2 level is higher where we're sitting now than it is outside there? Well, good question. I assume that you have been working since 6 Yes, so you say, you're saying I brought it in? You breathe it out. And it depends on what you eat last night for dinner or what you have this morning. For example, if you have bagels in the morning or you have uh, donuts and those carbons, Oh, coffee. I got coffee right here. Yeah. And I had some oatmeal here this morning. Uh-huh. That, and all the that carbon that you have in your meal, they're going to expire out as a carbon dioxide because you get energy that way by burning, well, cellular uh, respiration to get the energy that you need. And that's the same thing that when we start the soil, we put them in a steel jar and we can monitor the amounts of carbon dioxide that respire by the soil. So in this way, we know that soil, just like us, they're breathing. They're breathing out CO2. That's how we know that they are alive and they have living organisms there, just like us, eating carbon, or in a way, like eating carbon, and then getting the energy they need and at this process, they respire out part of the carbon dioxide. At the same time, a lot of their biomass, after they die, the microorganisms die, they become part of the soil again matter. So that's why we have this dark color. If you have like a rich soil, uh, fertile soil, you can see this dark color. And there's a lot of organic material that have been processed and accumulated by the microbes over time. And they store a lot of carbon in this way in the soil 
Now, I was here in this studio alone until you two arrived here at 7.30. Will that CO2 monitor that you said 800 parts a moment ago, will that change as the three of us are in the studio now in the next hour? Uh, depends on ventilation that you have here. here. I mean, it's always a balance, right? Like the amount of uh, carbon dioxide you uh, respire out versus like how much you can circulate um, and vent out into outside. But one thing I want to point out is that people are concerned about like, oh, are we breathing out CO2? Does that contribute to uh, increase in carbon dioxide in the atmosphere? Well, the question is no, not really. Because we breathing out CO2, but we also get those carbon from the food, which plants produce it through photosynthesis, and then take those carbon from the atmosphere. So it's almost a closed loop system in this way. And what we're concerned about the increase in carbon dioxide was the carbon that are not original in this cycling process, such as fossil fuel. We actually dig them out very deep in the soil and burning them in our car. So that's the one that the main contributor of the increase in carbon dioxide. Monique Mashad here, a graduate student in the Department of Plant Science and Landscape Architecture at UConn. Monique, just to say a couple words about organic matter in soil, which builds good soil structure. Yeah, um, I think Dr. Gan um, beautifully alluded to the fact that organic matter really is crucial for not only good soil structure, but also um, enhancing the ability of the soil to have good infiltration. So infiltration, the ability of the soil to have water permeated into the ground is also a hugely important um, soil property aspect. Um, a good example of this is we have a few visuals in the studio um, of soil from a cornfield versus soil from a hay field. So um, a lot of intensively managed cornfields in Connecticut are depleted of nutrients and don't have a lot of organic matter, as opposed to less intensively managed systems like a hay field um, that has much more organic matter. And you can visually see the darkness of the soil um, illustrating that. And so what organic matter does is it not only increases infiltration by increasing pore space, so here you could see a lot more air space in the soil, um, but it also is a much more absorbent material and it allows a much better habitat for biota like earthworms that also enhance the soil. So um, if we were to pour water on top of a cornfield, the water would just barely penetrate the surface and get down as opposed to a more organically matter um, abundant like a hay field, the water will be able to go down. So this is this knowledge is applicable for anybody listening at home. Um, for residential lawns, for example, adding organic matter in the form of things like clippings, mulch, um, all of this will help this water to infiltrate the soil um, and help the grasses resistance to drought. Well, along the same lines, you've got soil samples there from a cornfield and a hayfield. What if you took a soil sample from someone's backyard garden, be it a vegetable garden, be it forsythia, be it any kind of a common household plant? Would you find the same type of samples that you're displaying here? Yeah, so it all really depends on the soil structure and the organic matter. Um, usually in backyards, you're not going to have the same management practices as, say, um, a 40-acre cornfield where machines are constantly going in, there's tillage, there's plow pans, there's compaction. So um, most likely in a lot of lawns, some people aerate them. There's a lot of organic matter additions. Um, so it definitely won't be as dramatic as cornfields, but it definitely depends. And um, bottom line is organic matter and the additions of that can definitely help anybody.
Dr. Gan, you trained her well. <laughs> what was it you for you, Dr. Gan, that mm-hmm. got you first interested in studying soil? We all played around in the dirt as kids, mm-hmm. but mm-hmm. you took it to a new level. This is related to my upbringing as as a kid. I actually grew up in southern China in a remote village that we grew pretty much all our own food. So that is part of the subsistence farming that you get, literally get all the food that uh, you can get from uh, your land. And I'm comfortable with playing with dirt or, <laughs> um, and I like about different kind of food production system. And that's how I get started uh, and want to explore more about what's there in soil and how we can make our soil better. And uh, Monique, same thing for you. What was it that got you interested in this particular field? UConn has an excellent, excellent plant science program um, where they kind of allow you to explore a bunch of different stuff. So getting involved in research and having the opportunity to not only work under Dr. Gon, um, having the opportunity to work with NRCS soil scientists, it really is the coolest job ever. You get to go out, as you say, play in the dirt, um, dig giant pits, and really help the environment. So I think it's that aspect of what you get out of it, of knowing that you're helping for the greater good. Dr. Gan, is a soil sample the same if you were in a metropolitan area, be it Romantic, Willimantic, be it Hartford, be it New Haven, be it Waterbury, as it would be if you took a soil sample in a rural area? We got plenty of those around here, but do, do you find different soil samples in cities than you do in the country? Yes. Um, that was a pretty good uh, questions. Um that people have about like a soil and how human can actually play a big role in changing the soil and how they look and how they uh, develop over time. And a couple of years ago, we have this project that uh, we're going out to dig a lot of soil pits across Connecticut, including some people's like residential lawn. And sometimes you can actually see that different layer of like human transporting materials laying on top of the original soil that you have. And you can learn a lot by looking at the soil profile to knowing what happened like 100 years ago or like uh, uh, even longer over that time. And in open area, the main dif- differences of the soil is that we have a lot of disturbance. You know, sometimes you have like uh, building material just like deposit over there and then you transport like some sod over, like, over on top and you transport a lot of like composting to build like a, a garden. Uh, it make it a lot more complicated than in out in the rural area if there's not that much of like human um, change over time that you can actually see a very consistent pattern at typical like for example like landscape location and that's how we uh, classify and describe soil just like um, we have very diverse of like uh, uh, tree species and bird species we also uh, describe like uh, soil as different series Uh, you have like different also like soil family so that's called like a soil taxonomy and in Connecticut uh, soil scientists mostly soil scientists from the Natural Resource Conservation Services. They have described over um, 100 soil series. A soil series just means that soil shares similar characteristic or like appearance and share similar, uh, for example, mineralogy, parental material, and 
and how they look like uh, over the depth uh, profile. And it's just a fun fact out there, just like every state have their state flower, for example, like state bird. Uh, Connecticut, we also have our state soil. And the state soil of Connecticut is a soil called like Windsor soil. And the type of soil that developed on this glacial outwash is very deep and very sandy. And as the only limitation is that because it's so sandy, it drains water very fast. It could be likely to, if you have like a drought, for example, the plants are likely to uh, suffer from like uh, droughts and you need to have a lot of irrigation. And back in the days, this type of soil is very important for tobacco production, which is still today. So is the Windsor soil more suited for tobacco production or is Windsor soil something that our gardens, for example, would grow things better if they had Windsor soil and not whatever soil is native to the area? Windsor soil is actually suitable for a lot of agriculture productions, not just for tobacco. And if you have some Windsor soil in your backyard with proper management, particularly adding some nutrients because they're so sandy that they're not particularly like uh, rich in organic materials. So if you know how to enrich the organic material in those uh, sandy soil, that's a way that you can use it to produce uh, food and growing flowers and yeah. Anybody that's used to shovel in Connecticut knows that in Connecticut, we grow rocks really well. But what you're dealing with here is that small little area of topsoil mm -hmm. above the rocks, isn't it? Because if you go much deeper, there's not much more soil there. You're going to hit something hard, and I'm sure that's a problem for builders as well. But is there more soil beneath these rocks that we hit when we use a shovel? Not that much. Uh, Monique can also tell you that we did a lot of soil pits. And when you get down to maybe one foot one foot uh, yeah one foot deep uh you're getting like what we call like the subsoil you were thinking you were thinking metric weren't you that's why you paused there. yeah yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, meter foot yeah we get it right and below that you barely have any kind of like uh, organic materials and biological activity that's why we always uh focus on like the topsoil because that is the layer that are going to be more like biological active and providing nutrients for like plant growth. And below that, you don't have that much activity. And that was because Connecticut soil is considered to be relatively young because you probably have, have heard that um, about like 15,000 years ago, all this area was covered by massive of uh, ice sheet and the soil is not really developed until after the glacial retreats and you have vegetation that come back and slowly like uh, develop the, the soil with all the plants, roots growing, the microbes and all the uh, weathering process that going on from those uh, material deposits by the glacial uh, uh, till. Monique, did you want to add something to that thought? Yeah, um, I've definitely had a lot of experience this summer. Part of a larger project that we're working on this past summer is going around to a bunch of different sites um, all around Connecticut and digging pits to test infiltration, the amount of water going into the ground. And I definitely will say that sometimes when you get past a certain point, um, sometimes it's not even rock, that the soil is just so hard and so compact that there's really nothing you can do. But definitely have ran into that a lot this summer. Probably we got to 
mention now and perhaps later as well, the importance of getting your soil tested if you're a property owner and Yukon does that. How do people do it? What's the proper way to get your soil tested? So Yukon does have a nutrient analysis, analysis lab, just like many uh, land grants university. It can help you to test the nutrients levels of your soil and the pH. And those mostly the purpose is to um, make sure that you get like enough nutrients or whether you need liming to make sure that your soil are proper to grow uh, certain ki kinds of crops. At this point that what we're doing um, in my program is trying to develop a more like comprehensive assessment of like soy house not just for like uh, the nutrients levels but more kind of like how the soil function in a way that provide other ecosystem service just like we mentioned earlier like the carbon sequestrations the water regulations so yeah that's still a working progress and because a lot of those methods that rely on the traditional like uh, uh, wet lab like you have people like coming in do a lot of like lab work and it could be like very expensive so that's why i have been trying to develop like uh, based on like a sensor technology for example um, that's why that we have this like co2 sensor that we can measure like microbial respiration pretty easily and we actually brought like a couple of those devices here so that in the future i'm hoping that we can really make the uh, uh, cost of doing this kind of like a soil assessment a lot more like affordable and so that people can start to uh, test out their soil more and understanding what the limitations are and that's a way of like improve over time and monitoring over time. And the Yukon Home and Garden Center is the place to take your soil samples. All right, Dr. Gan, you brought in other show and tell visual aids which always work well on radio but that's why i'm here so you already showed us the co2 monitor which showed a high level of co2 in the studio thanks to me what's next on the show and tell agenda we have a mason jar um which is a very common tool soil scientists use to do uh, soil incubations because i have a pretty good seal and that's how we actually measure the amount of CO2 respired by microbes by putting certain amounts of soil inside and then cap it and then you can monitor the increase in the uh, carbon dioxide concentration over time. Alright so what I'm seeing here I'm seeing the clear mason glass jar mm -hmm. and it's got the metal cap on it we've all seen that and then it looks like there's some kind of a, a metal little tiny flower pot in there that's filled with don't say dirt soil mm -hmm. Although somebody on the street would see that and call it dirt. But then there's some gizmo stuck in it with a green light in it. What's the green light for? Is this a signal of the sensor is working? It's actually a commercial available uh, carbon dioxide sensor. It's about $50 each. Uh, uh, you can on, actually get it. Go um, on, buy one today. Well, but, but, but in a serious nature, though, mm -hmm. would a common homeowner need one of those? What would they do with that? Um, unless you want to monitor like the carbon dioxide uh, in your bedroom or <laughs> some of the <that laughs> things. In general, that we still don't have like a, a device that we can confidently tell like homeowner saying that oh go to get buy this and then if you measure this soil this way that how much of the uh, 
copying of microbial do you have? We still need to collect a lot of data to actually build like a library and database and tell people that, okay, if you do this measurement, what does it actually mean like in the, in, for your soil in terms of the soil health status, in terms of the microbials that you have? So we are still in the early stage and definitely right now we only use it for research purpose. But I'm hoping that in the future that we can have enough of like a library and database and we can um, also have this kind of device that I can hand out to people saying that if you go to collect your soil and do this measurement and give us back the data that we can help you interpret what it actually means. All right, so Monique, out of that mason jar's lid, there's a wire that's coming out and I really can't see the end of the wire, but tell me where that wire goes and what it tells you. Yeah, so the cool thing about this sensor that Dr. Gan has engineered is that it's all little pieces put together and it's actually fairly simple to use. So um, looking at the mason jar here, you have a sensor piece that's inside the mason jar that's actually detecting the CO2. And then coming through there, there's kind of a silicone seal to make sure that the seal in the mason jar is good. And then the wire running out is connecting to um, the controller where you can actually see um, there's a little display screen on there. It'll show you things like temperature. It'll show you the time, the date, um, and then the carbon dioxide that's actually being emitted then from there. And the battery power for the sensor, the reason that makes it really portable is it's actually just your little portable um, iPhone charger battery device. Um, but yeah, so that's a controller that you can actually hook up um, many different sensors to. You can test things like carbon dioxide. There's different sensors for um, temperature, water level, methane. There's a ton of cool things that you could do with a sensor like that. Now, where did that soil that's inside the mason jar come from? This one that we actually collected from a local uh, cornfield from a dairy farm. And it's the same one that uh, Monique mentioned uh, earlier. The one that have a lighter color, which we know that have lower carbon concentrations. And when we measure the uh, microbial respiration, we also know that they're going to have lower microbial activity. As I mentioned before, like microbial activities are very important for breaking down the complex forms of organic matter, releasing the nutrients for plant uptake. And at the same time, it's also the microbes that are doing the work of converting the plants material into a microbial biomass and nowadays that we know that a lot of those organic material in the soil are actually microbial necromass that's what we call it all like a products uh, uh, synthesized and leave behind by the microbes what would happen if you dumped out the soil that's in that mason jar and took the same amount of soil from our front yard here between here and the brick sidewalk on Main Street. Would that give a similar reading or is the soil here totally different from what you had in there originally? I didn't have a chance to look at what the soil looks like. Look out the window outside. right now to see what our uh, what yeah, our front yard looks like. like. Yeah, it does have a lot of organic material, so I assume that we would release more like carbon dioxide. Which is good. Beginning. Well, we want um, enough of what we call those active carbon, kind of like a, a food and energy for the organism living in there. But at the same time, we also want some stabilized like carbon that stay behind as what we call like the carbon sequestrations. So it's always like kind of like you want um, 
be able to create some energy for the microbes, but at the same time that you want your soil like not having all the uh, carbon dioxide respiration and converting all the uh, organic material and release them all into the atmosphere. Monique, is it possible to increase carbon in the soil? Increasing carbon in the soil is something that um, a lot of people can do. And like I mentioned earlier, um, one of the main things that you can do is increase the organic matter um, in the soil to increase that carbon content. Um, By doing what? You can add things as far as like a residential lawn. Um, any organic material is any plant material that was living and is now decomposed um, into a matter. So that could be anything from leaves, mulches, grass clippings, any material that was once living and is now not to uh, kind of create that little buffer. And Dr. Gon can speak more. Yeah, so another reason why like soil has received a lot of attention lately was because now we realize that soil is actually a very big stock of carbon in that. It's actually contained more carbon than the entire atmosphere, more than twice. So any small changes in the amount of carbon that you have in the soil will have a substantial impact on the carbon dioxide concentration in the atmosphere. And as I mentioned like earlier, for the cornfield, we currently have pretty low carbon dioxide. That was because there's a lot of tillage going on and there's not much like a rest residual return. And if we can find a way to increase the amount of carbon. In this case, in the farming scenario, we have plenty of the field evidence that if you adopt practice such as cover crops and no-till in combinations, that could increase the organic material in the soil over time. And we actually have a long-term experiment in the Yukon Research Farm carried by a professor um, that is recently retired, Dr. Carl Guillard and Dr. Uh, Tom Morris that they found that if you have like no-till for 50 years, you can actually in double the amount of like uh, organic material in the soil. And that translated into a lot of carbon that's sequestrated. We have done the calculations that if you have one acre cornfield, if you double the soil carbon, you can increase at least eight tons of like a carbon in the soil per acre. Eight tons of carbon per acre, what does that actually mean? Well, it actually means that you can offset the amount of carbon dioxide emission from eight passenger cars just for one year. But We've had still. two massive rain events, including one that totally flooded Main Street here mm -hmm. about a week ago. What's the effect of that on soil? Does quality soil get washed away and needs to be replenished? Yeah, so it depends on how the, the state of the soil, whether it's covered or whether it's like totally bare soil exposed. In like a heavy storm like this, uh, if you have bare soil exposed, it's very likely that you will lose some of the topsoil through like the uh, wind, uh, like the water erosion. Um, but if your soil like have nice plants cover, the roots are holding and bounding those soil together, you're li less likely to lose soil. And as I mentioned, um, soil is a very slow process to build up because it takes those microbes like hundreds of thousands of years to convert those organic material into like microbial biomass. And usually it takes about like 500, 1,000 years to build just one inch of topsoil. Um, if you lose those topsoil, it's very difficult like, to get them back. 
that's why I consider, you know, I think it's important to realize that soil is actually a very valuable natural resource. And I think that's something that, you know, it was very important to make sure we have them and live them for um, our future generations so they can have those soil that they need to produce uh, food. Well, let's start at the very beginning. Mm -hmm. A very good place to start. Where does soil come from in the first place? It's probably been here since the beginning of the planet. But where does it come from? So we don't usually consider like parental material or the material as soil. As you probably not consider the, the surface material on the moon or in the Mars are a soil. Soil is, is actually a process of we call like soil farming factors. Uh, you need time, which is one of the farming factor. And you need the parental material. And different regions of the world, you have different like parental material, which is like the original materials that getting exposed. Uh, for example, in New England area, the parental material is mostly a glacial teal material that drop behind uh, after the glacial retreats. So you need organisms, as I mentioned, and those organisms including plants, plants roots, uh, all these things are living in the soil like earthworm and most importantly like microbial organisms and you need also like we call it like the uh, farming factors like five farming factors of like soil formations like the topography of the landscape um, so do I cover them all like five Monique do you want Time, <laughs> so it's like topography. climate is very important if you have like freezing all the time that you don't really have organism living right and if you don't have rain if you have in by the all desert the time, area you, by all the time you mean 12 months of the year because we get plenty of freezing around here in the winter time what it means is like a, a, a climate that is suitable for like organism to live for example in the desert you don't have rain so you have like a lot of sand in the desert but you don't consider the desert like have soil because it doesn't have like the proper like a climate for the soil to form so you need all these like five farming factors to develop soil. And soil in different regions of the world, world they have different age uh, because they're different in those like a soil farming factors. Yeah, that's how like soil coming uh, from. You have all these uh, uh, climate, parental material, the uh, topo topography, like this different slope in the landscape and the organism. And the last one is time. So time is yeah, part I think, of the uh, process. I think the bottom soil. line for people to understand at home of the need for soil conservation is just that there's a lot of complex factors that go into soil formation and just the amount of time that it takes, um, which is why soil is so important to conserve. But is it something the average person on the street gives any thought to? Do they, do they think about, how do I conserve my soil? They don't. Should they? Definitely, definitely. And I think that that's a very valid point is that a lot of people don't, um, even where your food comes from, a lot of people just go to the grocery store and don't give that a second thought of where it might come from. But um, as we know, climate change is happening and there's a, a big need for conservation, um, which is why people should care about soil. Um, and they could do things at home, like we mentioned, you could do covered soil as healthy soil by not leaving a lot of soil exposed, adding organic matter. There's many practices that even the average homeowner or person on the street can do um, to help care about this matter and put it towards this cause. Dr. Gunn, explain how soil organic matter functions like a sponge 
that absorbs water and affects how water moves through the soil. Yeah, so those organic material um, actually, because they're not just like food for the microorganism living there, right? At the same time, they also kind of like uh, has creates a lot of like a soil structure because they're more likely to hold onto the uh, mineral particles. Tell them what you're picking up while you talk here. You're actually looking at one of the samples. Yeah, so um, again, this is why we brought here in the studio. One that we collected in a, in a uh, conventionally managed cornfield and the other one that we uh, collected from uh, a hay field that had been under hay productions for over 100 years. And you can see the very nice structure of what we call aggregates is basically clumps of soil that bounce pretty tightly together. Um, and because they tight together and that it creates this like a nice structure that allow more like space in the soil. So when you have this like a structure, um, the soil will be less compacted. And when you have rain coming in, water are more likely to infiltrate and percolate through. And at the same time, there will be more like a space in the soil that to hold on to those water. And that those water are the one that the plants will be able to have access to when you have like a, 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 like a no rain after the rain. Soil health and agroecology. Dr. Gan, what does that mean? So I'm um, actually got my PhD in ecology, and I'm trained as an ecologist. But I love agriculture so much. And agriculture, agroecology, is a field of applying ecological principle and use those principles to develop practice that more mimic the actual ecological process in uh, agriculture productions. And Monique, you've got a great teacher, a great mentor here. What do you see yourself doing 10 years down the road? Will you be a research scientist? Will you be working out in the field? What do you see yourself doing with this educational background? Yeah, I would say one of the things that I'm most proud of is that I get to tell people all the time that I currently am working my dream job of studying soil science. So personally for me, 10 years from now and whatever that looks like, bottom line, I hope that it's studying soil science and having a lasting impact on the environmental knowledge and conservation that we have here in Connecticut as a fellow Connecticut native. Personally, my goals right now after working through um, under Dr. Gann and a bunch of different um, uh, situations. I personally want to work as a conservationist to um, conserve our resource for soil in Connecticut. Her dream job. How about that? Dr. Gunn, you had something you wanted to add from what we talked about earlier that you told me during the break. Did you want to pick up on that right now? Oh, yes. It was just something about like uh, for people that um, interested about like uh, uh, using soil as a strategy to increase carbon sequestration and mitigate climate change. And we know that Connecticut is a very small agriculture state compared to a lot of other out there. And we have very small land area that devoted to agriculture. But at the same time, we have a lot of urban uh, development. And actually a fun fact is that in Connecticut, there are more lawn 10 times more lawn than corn productions. So I think that are a lot of opportunities that we can uh, participate. And if you're a homeowner, for example, you can find ways to increase uh, organic building uh, practice that could increase the carbon in your home lawn, and that could offset a lot of your carbon footprint. 
One of my favorite horticulturalists who got her degree from the University of Connecticut said, all animal life on this planet is living on the exhaust fumes of plant life. And that would include humans as well. And mm-hmm. want to explain that a little bit more? Like we talked about that earlier, but just to explain what that means about all animal life on this planet is living on the exhaust fumes of plant life. Yeah, that's how we get our energy from. Um, we all get our energy traced all the way back to the sun, right? And the plants, they have this magic for the synthesis process that converts the energy from sunlight into the chemical energy that's stored in those like uh, carbon hydrates and all the uh, plant materials. And we human eat plant as our food and animals, the livestock, they eat plants as their food. So a lot of those uh, animals, like for example, um, they are like uh, herbivores. They rely on like a plants as their main uh, source of uh, food input. And if you're eating meat, you're eventually getting all these like uh, energy and food from plants. And plants, they're getting their energy from the sun, but at the same time, they're getting all the nutrients from the soil. So I see the two sample tubes of soil that we talked about earlier. I see the one mason jar with a wire coming out of the top. I see another mason jar over here. Do you have other show-and-tell items to talk about this morning? Or yeah, it's just like a way to demonstrate that the two soil, the one is low in organic uh, uh, material from the cornfield, and one has uh, high organic material in the cornfield. That is definitely the one from the, uh, the uh, hayfield that have higher organic material. Now the CO2 reading is 3,200 part per million like 3,200 part per million. And the one from the corn field, since we kept it this morning, is at 2,600 um, part per million carbon dioxide. That just means that the soil collected from the hay field, they have more active microbial organisms that are converting the organic material into uh, carbon dioxide. And when you first got here, you took the CO2 reading in the studio. Has mm-hmm. that changed in the last hour? Actually, for some reason, it goes down from 800 to 700. So I assume that maybe something have changed in terms of the ventilation, or maybe I'm getting a little bit more calmer and breathing less. Because when I just got here, I got like a very excited and nervous, <laughs> and I'm probably breathing out. Actually, which is true. Like if you're in a more like active state, you're breathing out more CO2. Well, see, what I, my theory is that with that original reading you had was from whatever I put in the air here in the studio, and now the two of you have come and you brought the level down. So it's a, <laughs> it's a good thing. You should come every morning. Speaking of that engineering technology, you have collaborations with researchers in UConn's Department of Engineering to incorporate nitrogen sensors into the configuration to gather even more data. Just talk in general about the symbiotic relationship that you in plant science have with the engineering school at UConn. Yeah. Uh, we actually also have like uh, some collaborations with engineers from the UK actually this uh, past summer that they brought a very interesting device. They call it like the microdialysis, the same one that you use in the hospital and actually use it to measure the uh, nitrate concentrations in the soil. You probably know like those nitrates are the main uh, fertilizer for plant uptake and 
having a way like, to directly measure those like, concentrations in the soil is very important to guide like uh, precision uh, nutrients management. And as a soil scientist, I think it's very important to seek collaborations with other fields, like such an engineer, to adopt like the latest technology to find a way that we can measure the more precise and a lot of time like institute information that we need to improve our agriculture practice. Monique, you talked about this being your dream job. What's your favorite part of all the things that you've studied regarding plant science, regarding soil with Dr. Gan and others that, that really has been something fun for you from an academic point of view? Definitely, definitely the most valuable thing about studying soil science in this lab is going out into the field and actually doing it. It's one thing to learn in the classroom, but I know um, a lot of people can relate to me when I say that you definitely learn more when you're immersed directly in it and you're out there and you're seeing the soil and working with it. So especially in our lab, whether it's working with the engineering students or traveling all around Connecticut to go to different forest sites, orchards, whatever you have it, um, it's definitely being outside, being in the field and directly absorbing that soil information. Is there a concern about insect-ravaged trees that die in big patches in the forest and eventually the dead roots aren't holding the earth into place? I mean, there's a concern in terms of, like, if you're thinking about, like, forest conservation, for yes. example. And there's a lot of invasives nowadays, uh, even in Connecticut, such as, like, the emerald, like, ash borer that can kill a lot of those, like, uh, ash trees. And when those trees die, that we want to make sure that there's, like, um, place uh, that the forests are going to regenerate themselves. And if there's not a way that you have other plants come in to start to develop, those soil can be loose very easily because, they, as mentioned, that if you don't have the roots, bound them and hold them together, and you don't have like a cover, they can easily uh, get uh, washed away by water or like even like a wind erosions. You talked this morning about how you do your studies on soil, mm -hmm. but there's a debate in the soil science community regarding how soil health assessment should be done. Mm -hmm. What are some of the other ways that's done and why is there a debate about this? Uh, the debate is actually centered around how you actually define soil health. We know about human health, there's a lot of like a, a hospital like uh, measurement that you can do for example, monitoring your, your glucose level, your like uh, blood sugar levels. But in soil, because the soil is very different in terms of different soil have very different kind of like um, parental material. And at the same time, it depends on what do you want the soils for? Use this soil for. Are you going to use it for producing? For example, if you growing some like rhododendron uh, trees, those require very acidic soil. So those soil may not be good for growing vegetable, for example, but it's good for those particular trees. So it's very difficult to say that, okay, like uh, how do you put like a number or like a set of like a measurement and saying that, okay, this is a bad soil. But we do have some general idea what we consider as like a relatively good soil. Um, that's kind of like a, something that you want to consider the holistic pictures of different uh, soil properties and for me one way to think about is that soil is a habitat for living organism right if we think about if we want to have like comfortable like living habitats what it would be like 
like in soil, it needs proper space because that's how the oxygens and the water get into it. If the soil getting too compacted, then you don't really have like all this like uh, uh, space for the organism to move around and lack of oxygens. So the compaction levels a lot of time we can measure through the book density that can tell you whether you have like a constraints or limitations in your soil or not. But the debate is centered around, okay, like, do we really put a number like ranking the soil, you know, because every, as I mentioned, like there's so many different like soil series, everyone, every one of those soil series have very different like a property itself. So it's very difficult like to give them a number and rank them. And again, mm -hmm. people can get their soil at their property tested. Take more than one sample though, front yard, backyard, side yard, and so forth, because many times the soil can be different depending on the location, and take it to the Yukon Home and Garden Center and you learn a lot about how to improve the soil quality and what you can plant on your property. A study of soil this morning with Dr. Huiji Gan, Assistant Research Professor of Soil Health and Agroecology at the Department of Plant Science and Landscape Architecture at Yukon, and her graduate student, Monique Mashad. Ladies, fun show today. Thanks for the show and tell, too. Thanks for coming in this morning. Thank you for having us. Thank you. 14 WILI Willimantic and 95.3 FM.